Now, there's a number of ways to get around. Let's say, for example, you want to get from Medford to, say, St. Louis. I don't know why you'd want to go to St. Louis. Um, maybe watch a baseball game or go up in the arch. It's very exciting to go up in the arch. There's a train in there. Did you know that? It's a train you ride to get up in there. I had no idea until I got there. But you could get to St. Louis by a number of ways. Let's imagine that you wanted to get to St. Louis uh, by airplane, which I think is commonly done nowadays in the modern age. Um, The primary reason for riding on the airplane is what? To get to St. Louis. The primary job of the airplane is to get us from here to there. When it doesn't do that, we get really irritated. When it does it late, we get really irritated. Um, So the primary job of the airplane, we want to get on the airplane, Mr. Plane, take me to St. Louis. Now, you could also get to St. Louis by train. It takes longer, and you could do it. I imagine people still do it. But why would you ride by train to St. Louis? Certainly, you'd want to get there. But, you know, the fact is, if you're taking a train to St. Louis, you probably want to enjoy the train ride. Am I right? I mean, the whole idea of taking a train is sort of this romantic notion of the clickety-clackety of the wheels and and uh, for some reason, food tastes better on a train crossing the country, and maybe you'll imagine cowboys running up next to you. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> There's even train tours you can take. You can, you can take a cruise on a, on a ship into Alaska, and then once you get up into Alaska, you can hop on a train and do a train tour. You can take a train from the uh, west coast in Canada to the east coast. I think some folks in here have taken that train. Do you ride the train to get somewhere when you're doing that? No, you're riding the train because you're riding the train. That sounds awesome. So we have two different kinds of transportation, and both of them have two very different purposes. The plane, the reason you ride on it is to get there. We want to get to St. Louis. The train, the reason you ride on it generally or typically is to enjoy the ride on the train and the enjoyment that comes from that. And this, uh, this morning as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14, we're going to look at these two uh, chapters. We're going to be looking at King Saul And we're going to be looking at his son, Jonathan. And we're going to be really sort of comparing their experiences in this story. And we have here a comparison, I'll give you the title, A Foolish Father and a Wise Son. A Foolish Father and a Wise Son. And we're going to compare them using these two modes of transportation. Hopefully it makes sense. If it doesn't, I apologize a little. Not a lot, just a little. So let's look first at King Saul. Let's explain what's, what's happening beginning of 1 Samuel 13. King Saul had gathered to himself a, a fairly large army, and then he had deployed the army. Uh, some were assigned to, to him, and some were assigned to his son, Jonathan, and they were deployed to strategic areas in uh, Israel, mostly just to the north of present-day Jerusalem. They're, they're trying to root the Philistines out of Israel. We're going to find out the Philistines had a tight grip on Israel, and and, and Saul is using strategy to try to make it a little more difficult for the Philistines to, uh, to harass the Israelites. And in fact, his strategy was so effective, he was able to send some of, them, some of his troops home. It says at the beginning of, of 1 Samuel 13, they deployed them, and, and some of the men he was able to send home. And uh, Jonathan had been assigned to a particular outpost uh, near Geba. Uh, you know where that's at, of course. Uh, if not, you can Google it while you're listening. Um, and so Jonathan's job was to get the Philistines out of Geba and, and, and clear it out. And so he does just that. He invades it, and he has some great success. And he defeats uh, the Philistines there and is able to establish an outpost uh, against uh, the Philistines. But this was sort of like poking a sleeping bear in the eye with a stick. And the Philistines realized that they thought King Saul was going to be a little bit, little bit of a pest, 
a little bit of an annoyance. Okay, let them have their silly king. Now they realize that they intended to really make it hard for the Philistines. So the Philistines deployed en masse their entire military force to fight against King Saul and Jonathan. It says in 1 Samuel 13, they had thousands and thousands of iron chariots. These chariots were made of wood, but iron uh, armored them in strategic places. They had cavalry. They had so many foot soldiers, they couldn't be numbered. He said there were as many as the sand on the seashore, which is, which is a lot. So here, Jonathan and King Saul thought they were going to be terribly effective against the Philistines. They poked the sleeping giant, and now the Philistines have shown up en masse on their doorstep. And what are they going to do? I mean, they're dead. They're absolutely dead. So we're going to look at what King Saul does in this situation. So here's King Saul's approach to life and his relationship with God. I'll just give you the answers uh, so you know, and that way I'll give you the points, and then if you want to take a nap, it's fine with me. That's, on, that's between you and the Lord. King Saul sees God. King Saul sees God the way we might see that airplane taking us to St. Louis. God is simply a means to an end. Saul has a particular end in mind that needs to be achieved in relation to his rule as king, in relation to his uh, leading the military, and he has an end that needs to be accomplished, and God is one of the means that he's going to use to get to that end. So God to, to Saul is just simply the airplane to get us to the destination of victory over the Philistines. God is a means to an end for King Saul. So all of the troops are gathered, the Philistines against Israel. And all of the uh, army of King Saul begins to scatter. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 13 that they went all into caves and holes in the ground and cisterns. You know what a cistern is? It's it's like a brethren, but female. It's not. Cistern. Is a, they'd dig a hole in the ground and then they'd coat that hole with clay and they would allow it to harden and then water would be gathered in the cistern during rainy periods and they would use that for drinking water. And so the people were hiding in, in dry or half-empty cisterns to, to prevent the Philistines from seeing them and killing them. Everybody was scattering. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, The prophet Samuel had told King Saul, in seven days I'm going to show up and I'm going to provide a sacrifice for you and your army. Chill out till I get there. So there's the Philistine army gathered, massive arrayed in perfect order and shiny weapons. And here's King Saul's army at the the fringes just fraying and scattering and running. And now it's day seven and he wakes up and where's Samuel? He's nowhere. Now, everybody knows Samuel is supposed to be there to save the day because God's going to show up and bring them a victory, and Samuel doesn't even bother to show up, probably because he saw the Philistine army. He's smart. And so people are just scattering, and they are just running. Look with me at 1 Samuel 13, verse 19. It gets worse. We discover this. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel. The Philistines had said this, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went to the Philistines to have their plowshares and mattocks and axes and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel. So the 
Philistines had already rooted out all of their ability to make weapons and in fact told them if you want your farm implements sharpened, you have to come to the Philistines and we will charge you an exorbitant fee to sharpen your plows. The only people who had a sword in all of the army was Saul and Jonathan. This is a bad day. And now where's Samuel? Who knows? He's nowhere. With his army scattering and the Philistines before him, Saul knew one thing. He needed God on his side if he was going to win this battle. God needs to get on board, or I need to get on board God if he's this airplane so we can get to victory. So what does Saul do? He offers the offering that Samuel was going to offer. This is, makes perfect sense. The army was scattering. The Philistines were in front of him. An offering needs to be made, so Saul makes the offering. And just as he's done making this burnt offering, who shows up? Samuel. He was hiding. He was behind a tree watching to see what Saul would do. I don't know if he was doing that. But Samuel shows up and he rebukes Saul and says, your kingdom is gone. You've lost it. God wants a king who seeks his heart. And you're not that guy. Your kingdom will not endure. It'll be given to another man. A man who will seek after God's own heart. Saul, you see God simply as a means to an end. God wants someone who will seek him as his end. Everything's removed from you, Saul. You have been rebuked. And Saul says this. I want you to pay attention to what Saul says to Samuel. Verse 11 of 1 Samuel 13, if you're following along. Uh, Samuel, let me just give you a couple of data points in regard to my analysis of the situation. Firstly, I saw all the, man, all the men were scattering. Samuel, I don't know if you've ever run an army before. That's bad. So all the men were scattering. Thank you very much for being on time, Samuel. Secondly, you didn't come at your set time. Did you set the time on your iPhone, Sam? Oh, you have a Samsung that exploded. Okay. (laughs) That's terrible. You didn't come, Sam. Lost my army's running away, Samuel. And then you didn't come. You're a day late and a dollar short as normal. And then secondly, Samuel, I just want to point something out. I know you love the beautiful terrain of Israel. You've walked all over the thing. Have you noticed the gigantic army that's standing next to us? Have you seen the Philistines with their swords and their spears and their uh, chariots and their horses? Do you know what they're going to do with all that stuff? They're going to take the few military men that remained and shred them to ribbons. Samuel, I want us to understand something about Saul before we jump all over this guy's business. Everything he said is perfectly reasonable. I mean, this guy understands what is going on, doesn't he? I mean, he's standing in his own grave if something doesn't happen. He understands he has to have victory over the Philistines. The only way he's going to do it is if God gets on board. And so he offers the sacrifice because Samuel wasn't there. His men were running away, and the Philistines were going to kill them all. This is very, very practical. This is level-headed thinking. This is clear-headed thinking. He's being reasonable, isn't he? Guys, we got 600 of us left. We're going to find out. Only 600 guys remained. There's 600 of us left. Let's do a burnt offering and, and get it on. Let's do this thing. I mean, this, is, this, is, this makes sense. This is practical, level-headed, reasonable thinking. Religion. If I can say it this way, religion sees God as a means to an end. And that's what Saul 
Saul's, Saul's religion was, I need to get God on board so I can achieve the end I believe ought to happen, victory over the Philistines. And how do I get God to do that? Offer, offer a burnt offering. It's very practical. Notice the Bible records none of his men argued with him at that point. Nobody was rebuking him. They're like, that makes good sense. Prayer meeting before battle. Well, yeah. Never mind that he's in total violation of the command of God through Samuel. What was the problem with, with Saul offering a burnt offering before this battle where he was clearly at the disadvantaged? Because Saul didn't understand his role in the story that God was telling. Saul only saw his own story and an end within his own story that he wanted, and he wanted to make sure God was on board with that end. But God is telling a much bigger story than any one of us, isn't he? In fact, God is weaving all of human history, every single individual who has ever lived, into a gigantic story that brings him the most glory. At the end of the day, this is not a story about any one of us. It's a story about the glory of God, and he weaves together the tapestry of history into a gigantic grand story, grand narrative that says God is great and glorious. And Saul didn't understand that. Frankly, Saul didn't like the story God was telling. This story reminds us of another story in the Bible, a guy named Gideon. Do you remember Gideon? He was going to attack the Assyrians. He had a gigantic army, and God did him a favor of reducing it to 300. And God had his victory through Gideon's 300 guys to bring himself glory. What was Saul saying here? Hey, God, I don't want to be another Gideon. I don't want to fight with a small army. I want to fight with a big army and kick some Philistine tail. I don't want to be another Gideon. Saul might be imagining all of the stories of the book of Judges. Because remember, this is recent history for him. And how God had to intervene in a miraculous way. And, and, and Saul is thinking, listen, we can finally bring some respectability to the military of this country. No longer do we have to rely on these piecemeal military operations, a wing and a prayer, and hope God shows up. Come on. Let's think through this. Let's get a nice, big, well-equipped army and do the job. And bring some respectability to, to this people, this Israel. Bring some respectability to God. I mean, God certainly needs a respectable, noble people, doesn't he? I mean, can you imagine Saul thinking all these things? Of course. We need to understand something about God and his story, though. Just, I'm going to give you a little bit of insight. You're not going to like it, so just bear with me. God's story isn't very respectable. I don't know at what point through in Christian history we decided to just uh, turn God's uh, story into this respectable, glowy, shiny, clean deal. He's working with us. Just a couple of examples of God's story in the Bible. John the Baptist lives his entire life in the wilderness wearing camel skins, eating locusts and honey. Dies in a prison after being beheaded. What about Hosea? There's a respectable family man. God says, Hosea, you know what I want to do with you? I've got a calling for you. And Hosea's like, oh, okay, I'm in, man. God has called me. He said, I want to make your life, your entire life, not just like the few minutes, your entire life an illustration of my relationship with Israel. Hosea, oh, that sounds great. Okay, so Hosea, please marry an unfaithful woman. Have some kids and name your kids, not my people and not loved. How do you think those kids turned out? Then when your unfaithful wife leaves you, 
I want you to go redeem her out of slavery that she has on purpose put herself into with your own money and bring her back and love her again. There is nothing about Hosea's story that is respectable by any stretch of the imagination. What about Ezekiel? There's parts of Ezekiel I won't read in public. Now you're going to go look for them, have fun. They're interesting, I'll tell you that. I tell you, you think Song of Solomon is, but no, Song of Solomon has nothing on Ezekiel. What about the one prophet? He said, listen, I want you to lay on your side for a year, cooking your, your food over cow dung. And then when, when, when the time is up, switch to your other side. That doesn't even match what he told the other prophet. Preach for a year, please. Oh, okay, I can preach for a year. Naked. That's not respectable. Jeremiah, I want you to go on a trip. Okay, God, I'm on a business trip. That's good. What I want you to do is pack your bags and dig a hole through the city wall and drag yourself and your entire luggage through the hole in the wall to demonstrate to the people of Israel that they're going to be taken into captivity. Hey, God, can I just write a book? I mean, can I just... How about an article? A blog post they could read, maybe. That's not the weirdest thing he asked Jeremiah to do. He said, Jeremiah, I want you to wear the same pair of underwear and not wash them for a long time. Jeremiah goes, already done? Okay, next. (laughs) He's a dude. I don't know what to tell you. And God says, then I want you to walk 300 miles. No joke, 300 miles and then bury your underwear in the ground and then come back and then wait a while, go back 300 miles unbury your underwear, bring it back to Jerusalem, and then preach a series of sermons on why Israel is like your rotten underwear. So you didn't know these stories were in the Old Testament. You need to get your Bible out, get her done. There's some good stories in there. God's story in human history is not respectable. Saul wanted to have a respectable army and a respectable story where God showed up, did his job so Saul could have what he wanted. And God said, that's not what I'm doing here. Respectability says we establish in our own mind what our life ought to look like. Here, I'm going to explain in my own head, here's what life is supposed to look like. And then religion is the means by which we get God to do that for us. And we we play games on, well, God, this is what a respectable, good, old-fashioned Christian American ought to do. I say my prayer two times a day. Got to get her done for me. Establishing what what our life must look like or ought to look like, religion is a means where we try and convince God to engage in the life that we have determined ought to be, and God is simply the means to get to the end that we really want. And that's Saul. God is simply a means to an end. And he was flabbergasted that God wouldn't do what he wanted. Prayer for this kind of person is not a means to commune with the living God, Prayer is simply a time where we try to convince God that we know what's best. And prayer ought to be a time where we ask God and make requests and pour out our heart and souls, but the joy of that is God is listening, not that God is giving. In religion, we seek the strength of God when we are weak, but when we feel strong, thank goodness we don't need God today. But when we pursue God and who He is as God, we discover over the course of time we're never strong. We need Him every single day. We just sang a song that said, He owns the air in our lungs. I hope He doesn't come collect that right now, right? We have no strength. 
But when God is simply a means to an end, religion, we try to establish our own personal strength so that maybe over time we won't need God as much. When we pursue God for who he is, we determine over time we need him more than we ever thought. In, in religion, morals is just a means to either control God or others by getting others or God to conform to our own interests. Having righteous morals and righteous thoughts and deeds uh, in God's economy is really just a means by which we establish in our own heart what is already true of God. But instead, morals and righteous living is a means of control, trying to leverage God to do what we want or to convince the people around us to be more Christian-y. Because it's weird to be people around people who aren't like us. These are all ways we use religion to try and force God's hand to take us where we want him to go. Saul was a foolish father. Let's look at Jonathan, a wise son. Saul was sitting underneath a tree, and that's not terribly unusual for a king to take up court underneath a tree. Saul got his armor bearer as they looked at this army in front of them, the Philistine army. This is 1 Samuel 14. All the military of Israel was fleeing. There was maybe 600 guys left with Saul. And Jonathan uh, took his armor bearer and he knew that in a particular pass, the Philistines had established a stronghold And the problem with the location of this particular stronghold was it prevented supplies from getting to Saul's army, and if they were able to get any reinforcements, they would have to come through that pass. So Jonathan, being a military man, knew we got to clear that pass out if we're going to have any hope whatsoever. So Jonathan takes it upon himself with his armor bearer, go, go handle some business. I want us to understand a little bit about Jonathan. He approaches God a little bit different differently than his father Saul does. Jonathan sees his relationship with God not as a way to get to a particular end. Jonathan sees his relationship with God as that train we talked about. He's just enjoying the ride. He's just enjoying his time with the Lord. God is the end for Jonathan. He doesn't have a particular end in mind. God himself is the end, and, and, and on the journey with God, he's just going to see what happens. He has no religious pretense Notice he doesn't even say a prayer before he heads out with his armor bearer. He understands the Philistines are in possession of the promised land of Israel, and they ought not to be. And he was going to act by God's grace to go take care of some business. He acts as one who has authority. He's the son of the king. And he knows where some enemies are that need to be rooted out because they're on God's property. He's going to take care of it. He goes with God's purposes, and he decides to submit himself to God's way. So he arrives in this ravine to where this garrison is, and it says it was a valley with very steep cliffs, and the garrison was up on the cliff wall. They were at the uh, advantaged position from a military standpoint. And then Jonathan, for whatever reason, proceeds then to do absolutely everything the wrong way. He decides instead of sneaking up on the garrison to show himself to them. He decides instead of waiting for them to come to him to climb up the rocks to them. We read the passage earlier. He walked into it with his armor bearer, and he said, hey, here's what I'm thinking about doing. His armor bearer should have been smart like Saul and said, dude, you're nuts. But his armor bearer said, I am with you, heart and soul. Another way of translating that is to say, Jonathan, I am with you as 
to the same degree that your heart is in your chest. Another way of saying that, Jonathan, I will not be with you when your heart's not with you. That means you're dead. His armor bearer was completely loyal to the cause that Jonathan was going on. And so Jonathan set up a, a simple ruse. He said, we'll show ourselves to the garrison and, and we'll establish what God's purpose is by their response to us. When we show them to the Philist, ourselves to the Philistines, if they say, hey, come on up to us, and that's God's sign to us that he's given them into our hands. So unlike his father, who didn't want to have anything to do with being another Gideon, Jonathan has no problem seeking the Lord like scaredy pants Gideon. And he asked for a sign much like Gideon did. And so Jonathan goes and he calls that, shows himself to the Philistines. The Philistines say, come on up, teach you a lesson. And it says, Jonathan, his armor bearer, got up there and they taught the lesson themselves. By God's strength and by God's grace, they had the victory. It says this, that they were back-to-back fighting, the, the armor bearer fighting on one side and Jonathan fighting on the other side, and they killed all of them in, this, in, the, in a half acre, according to the NIV. What it really says is the amount of land it would take two oxen to turn in a half a day. You know, do the math, you're okay, it's about a half an acre, right? What does that mean? It means they didn't get far. You know, sometimes when you're defeating an enemy, you've got to chase him for miles and miles along. No, no, no. This was a whooping. They took care of business in a small amount. They, those guys had no chance because God was in the victory of Jonathan and his armor bearer. So Jonathan attacks. And at the end of this attack, the Bible tells us that the Philistines went into a panic and there was an earthquake of some sort. And this just created even more panic among the Philistines and they began to slaughter one another. They begin to fight amongst one another. They're going into a panic. Jonathan had, had sparked the victory by following God and, and saying, well, God, whatever you're going to do, I'll go with you. Okay, we'll see what happens when we climb up this hill. And now the Philistines were defeating themselves. Saul, from his position, could see the Philistine army, and he could see them fighting with one another. He decides we ought to go out and enjoy that battle. And so he calls the priest over. He's a good religious guy, remember? Got to make sure God's on board with my predetermined ends. Priest, get over here. So the priest comes over, and like a normal priest, he doesn't know how to pray for 30 seconds. Got to pray for an hour. So he... I don't know anything about that. But. So he brings the priest over, and he brings the Ark of the Covenant over, and he's doing a ceremony to bless the army. And the whole time, Saul is watching the Philistines, and they're, they're killing each other. He says, if you pray much longer, man, the battle's going to be over. And finally, the Bible, he says, he turns to the priest, he says, forget it, withdraw your hand, I'm done with this, I'm going to battle. Can you believe Saul? He's worried that now his religion is going to infringe on his ability to join the battle. God is already winning. At this point, how much does God need Saul to jump in? He doesn't. In fact, he tells all of his guys as they're riding off into the sunset to go join into the army. He yells out this infamous command. Guys, listen. None of you can eat a bite today until my revenge on the Philistines is complete. If anybody eats anything today before this this military operation is over or before the end of the day, which would have been sundown, you will be cursed. Nice way of saying you're a dead man. Nobody eats today till this victory is done. 
Jonathan, on the other hand, is enjoying the presence of God and enjoying the victory that God has given. Jonathan now has joined up with the rest of the forces, and they are chasing the Philistines into the woods. And Jonathan, he's been busy killing people all day. He's hungry. He's tired. And he sees on the floor of the forest, it says, honey. It says the rest of the army has seen it too. And it is amazing. There was, there was honey. There, were, there must have been more than just one honeycomb. Otherwise, more, the, the entire army wouldn't have seen it. There were likely bees everywhere. And Jonathan is walking through, and God has given him a great victory over the Philistines. And now what has God done? He's given him lunch. And you think, I'm kidding. What did God, how did God describe this land before they invaded it? A land of milk and honey. The only disappointment Jonathan had was there was no milk. So he's riding through and he sees the, the honeycomb on the ground. He takes his staff and he dips it into the honeycomb and he, he eats the honey. And it says his eyes were brightened. The psalmist used this term often of one who has encountered the presence of God. Here's a guy enjoying his day with his God. Enjoying the victory that God has given. Why? Because God was there. Enjoying the lunch that God has given. Why? Because God gave him food to eat. God had given him deliverance. God had given him honey. Here is a man who is communing with God as his end. Do you know what's amazing when we compare Jonathan and Saul in these two chapters? Is Saul is the only one doing overtly religious things. Jonathan is just doing his normal things with God. A guy tells Jonathan, hey, Jonathan, by the way, Saul made a rule, and he said, if anybody eats today, before the end of the day, they're cursed. And, so, and Jonathan replies to this guy, he says, my father has brought trouble. My father has brought Achan. Remember him? My father has brought Achan upon Israel. He has judged us with his lunacy. Why would you take your army? Why not take an army through a forest of honey and allow them to enjoy it? Enjoy God's spoils while you defeat God's enemies. Jonathan pursued God as his end, and God was with him through the entire course of time. Whereas all the other soldiers, because of the, the religious morals of Saul, that no one should eat, which uh, was a way of having a good luck charm for your army. They had all kinds of things they wouldn't do. David required his men before they went to battle. They couldn't uh, have relations with their wives during battle or just before battle. So it's, it's not terribly unusual. But to make your guys go without eating all day, that's lunacy. Here is Jonathan enjoying his presence with God with bright eyes and everyone else is famished. When they finally work out the victory on the Philistines, the guys are so hungry they're eating the food with the blood in it. They're so hungry they're slaughtering the animals and eating it before preparing it the way it's supposed to be prepared. And Saul finally gets scruples and says, guys, knock it off, we'll set up a butcher stand. Philistines have been routed, they're running. Everybody finally has a good meal in their belly, and Saul says, let's finish this job. Let's go get him. And what does the priest say? Um, you know, maybe we should pray. I mean, you've been so religious up to this point. May as well keep that going, right? And so Saul seeks God, and God doesn't answer. So God seek, uh, Saul seeks God and says, why is he not answering? And they discover Jonathan has eaten the honey. Let's look at what happens. 
Verse 41 of 1 Samuel 14. Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, give me the right answer. And, and Jonathan and Saul were taken by Lot. All the men were cleared. Saul said, cast a lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken by Lot as the guilty one. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done, you evildoer. Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey. I merely taste a little honey. Saul, by the, by the way, Saul, he says this earlier, if you would have let the men eat, the slaughter against the Philistines would have been greater than it even was. But since you dragged hungry troops to the woods, I merely tasted a little honey. I'm ready to die. NIV has it as a question. It's not the best way to translate. It says, and now, I mu- and now must I die? What he says, a more literal translation of the, the phrase there is, I'm ready to go. Let's get her on. Let's do it. I'm ready to die. Why would Jonathan be ready to go? He already has God. He already has him. He had him in the ravine. He had him in the battle. He had him walking through the woods eating honey. He already has God. He already has everything. His ends have already been achieved because he's already on the train. There's nowhere he's waiting to get to. The ends were God, and God is with him, and so he has everything he could possibly want. If religion means God is my means to my, to my ends, is very practical and level-headed and reasonable, then, then Jonathan, who already has God, is none of those things. So I have a phrase for how I like to describe Jonathan. He's recklessly at ease. He's recklessly at ease. I'm ready to die. What is wrong with you, man? Let's climb up the ravine, armor bearer, and kick some Philistine hiney. That's a Hebrew term, hiney. He's recklessly at ease. He seems too relaxed for the situation, but because he has nothing he needs to attain to, he already has the presence of God himself. Religion simply sees God as the airplane. How do I get from here to there and God's going to get me there? God is a means to an end. Whereas for Jonathan, God, he is the ends and the result is a reckless easiness. An urgency to have little urgency. We see this another place in the Bible. It's in Luke 8, 22. The disciples and Jesus take a boat ride now, normally for us, you take a boat ride to enjoy the ride, but for them, it was the actual transportation. During the crossing, Jesus took a nap. It took a little while to get from one place to the other on the Sea of Galilee, and while Jesus was napping, a storm hit. And the Bible tells us the storm was such a degree that the, the, the boat was taking on water, and they're feverishly bailing water out as fast as they can. And Jesus does the reasonable thing, takes a nap, continues sleeping. The disciples wake up Jesus because here in their journey, they're still more like Saul than they are like Jonathan. They wake up Jesus and say, Jesus, we're going to die. Think about it. I mean, just a minute. Just think about this. They've got Jesus in their boat. What else could they possibly want at that point? I mean, I mean, at that point, is there anything else left to get? 
Is there something on planet Earth or the galaxy that might be better than what's sleeping at the end of their boat? But see, they don't want him. They want him to help them get where they're going. Just good old-fashioned religion. If they had understood who was in their boat, they would have stopped bailing and done what a recklessly at-ease person does. What? Take a nap. If it works for him, why not? This is a great time to get some rest. I mean, does that never occur to the disciples that if he's sleeping, maybe that's what he would like me to do? But the disciples were what we love. They were practical and reasonable and level-headed. The best outcome is to keep the boat on the right side of the surface of the water. Jesus, though, was recklessly at ease. The result is that a clear sign of our rebellion, and I don't mean to get personal, well, I do a little bit, a clear sign of our rebellion is we tend to enjoy God, especially as we perceive Him moving us to our predetermined and our preferable future. A sign of our rebellion, not our spirituality, but a sign of our rebellion is we enjoy God especially when we perceive He is moving us to our preferable future. All right, good. He's on board. That's a relief. Glad he got the memo. God, you are good. Redemption in the message of the gospel through Jesus Christ is the fact that Jesus came to save us from the futility of our preferable future. And that's where our rebellion fights against our redemption. Is we want God to save us from the life we don't want, and God wants to save us from needing some sort of life. Because He has given Him He has given Himself to us. Luke chapter 10, there's another story of a couple of followers of Jesus. Jesus and his disciples were on their way, came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary. Martha opened her home to Jesus. You know the story, but think it through it the way we have been, the pattern. What's the practical, reasonable, level-headed thing to do when you open your home to somebody? Make a meal, clean the toilets. Mary is recklessly at ease, having abandoned all of her normal responsibilities. Lazy, I think, is the word we might use for Mary. She had a sister called Lazy Mary. No, she didn't. That's not in there. I added that. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha, she was distracted by all the preparation. This isn't a good one to read before Thanksgiving, is it? I'm sorry. (laughs) She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care about lazy Mary? Doing all the work myself. Trying to make sure everything's dialed in for God. 
Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things, but the one thing you need is what Mary has chosen. She's chosen the right thing, to be recklessly at ease. It doesn't make any sense. You've got a guest in the home. You can't just sit there. But as soon as Jesus walks into the home, what else does that home need? Is there anything that you can add to the situation? The king of the universe, creator, sustainer of all people, has walked into your home. What else can be added to this moment? Is the carpet being a little cleaner going to help that situation out? And Mary chose right. She says, everything's here. It's, as soon as he walked in, the job was done. Mary has chosen better. Martha was practical, reasonable, level-headed. And she was missing Jesus. A foolish father and a wise son. King Saul sees God as a means to an end. How do I, through my religious conniving, get God to do what I want? God is merely an airplane that gets me from where I am to where I want to be. Jonathan is recklessly at ease, terribly unpractical, extraordinarily unreasonable. He just simply sees every step along the way as a journey with God, so what else does he need? What else in the moment, if God is there providing honey and providing victory, what else could possibly he need? And so he stood when the curse came down and said, I'm ready to die. It was, it was the same thing was true of Jesus when he was on the cross. But instead of reading, receiving the curse from an angry and foolish father, receiving a curse from God that was caused by us, and couldn't you, can't you see him saying those same words? I'm ready to die. I think the words he used were, it's finished. King of the universe on the cross, it's not practical, it's not reasonable, it's not level-headed. Nobody expected it. It was crazy. And he provided the means for us, through his sacrifice, to just enjoy the journey with him, with the Father. I want to challenge you just in, in two ways. They're very, very simple, and then we'll close in prayer before we sing. When you think of your life with God, there's really, in this passage anyway, two goals. A life with God that is a means to accomplishing our own purposes by getting him on board with those plans, or a life that says, I just want to gain God. In that moment, when we're like Jonathan, say, all I need to do is gain God, the good news is Christ has given us himself voluntarily, and so it's just a matter of trusting him, and we receive access to God himself. In that moment, when we have gained God, what is our response? I'm good. I can die. Or I can remain, and, and I can stay here. Either way, I have gained God. What else is there? It's funny, as Christ followers, those of us who have put our faith in Christ for salvation from our sins, what else do we anticipate we can gain in this life? I mean, there's many, many things. We get, we're just like Martha. But the fact is, we have gained him. And we can enjoy the ride.